0: We're going to read here from Mark chapter 1 this evening, and uh, I'm going to tell you in a few moments after we read this passage what we're going to do with it. But if you have your worship folder in front of you, or if you brought a Bible and you'd like to follow along, uh, feel free to do that, or you can just listen. This is Mark chapter 1, the first 13 verses. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. and He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, O Lord. We're going to start a new uh, series tonight on Mark's gospel. And if you're at all familiar with uh, the other three, you'll notice that Mark's gospel is actually the shortest of all four. And in fact it starts very differently. There's that there's no birth narrative, there's no genealogy. He tells us nothing about the early years of Jesus' life. In fact he picks up really pretty much right with the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, except for these thirteen verses. And the reason that I, I picked this book is it's it's short or shorter. And it's quick, it's, it's fast-paced. But the real reason I wanted to, to, to work through this book with you is found in the very first verse. When Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I want us to spend several weeks looking intently together at the good news about Jesus. And, and the reason I want to do that is that the gospel is not good advice about how to live. That's not what he says in verse 1. What he says in verse 1 is that the gospel is good news about a person. And we need to remind ourselves of that and understand that and work it into our lives deeply. Because so quickly, I think our default is to turn Christianity into good advice. And Mark won't let us do that. He wants you to realize again and again and again that this entire book is good news about a person. And therefore, no matter who you are, where you're from, what path you've taken to get here, what good things you've done, what bad things you've done, what questions or doubts you have about Christianity... We need to begin with the good news about Jesus in order to navigate the realities of life without being undone by them. And and here is the claim of Christianity, and it's a bold one, but it's well worth you wrestling with. You cannot make sense of who you are, your life, your experiences, the world in which you live, if you don't start with ...the good news about Jesus. If you don't start there... ...you will get off track very, very quickly. Because everything about Christianity hangs... ...on what you believe about Jesus. Because everything about Jesus fundamentally changes... ...the way that you understand God... ...the way you understand yourself your destiny, the world you live in, everything. Now that's, I think, a very different way to approach your own life, dealing with your life, than perhaps is pretty common in our day. And I think a more popular approach is that we we need to better understand ourselves before we can experience personal growth and development. That if we don't understand who we are, we really can't make sense out of life and our purpose and what we need to do, and the the Bible flips that on its head, and it raises an important question, and I was reading one of my favorite New York Times writers, uh, David Brooks, he's an op-ed columnist, and he asked this question, how do you succeed in being introspective without being self-absorbed? In other words, how do you look at yourself in accurate ways? Ways that really do shed light on who you are, what you most deeply want, without being consumed by that. And he he gives this answer. Listen to his answer. He says, psychologists and others have given some thought to this question. The upshot of their work is that there seems to be a paradox at the heart of introspection. The self is something that can be seen more accurately from a distance than from close up. The more you yank yourself away from your own intimacy with yourself, the more reliable your self-awareness is likely to be. And I find this next statement very fascinating. He says, maturity is moving from the close up to the landscape, focusing less on your own supposed strengths and weaknesses and more on the sea of empathy in which you swim. Which is the medium for understanding others, oneself, and survival. Well, what's he saying? What he's saying is when we get so focused on ourselves, you actually lose clarity on yourself. When we can step back and get perspective, you have the landscape, there's actually more clarity. So if we, what I want you to see here is if we were to take this idea and apply it to Mark and the beginning of this gospel, here's what I think we come up with. The gospel about Jesus is the distance that we need to see ourselves accurately. Or even better, the good news about Jesus is the sea of empathy in which we need to swim to discover the limitless dimensions of God's grace and the wisdom we need to navigate life. I don't know if you've ever thought, I've never thought about the gospel that way before, of as, as a sea of empathy. It's a story of God entering in, empathizing with humanity, and bringing hope for us. So where does Mark begin in telling us about this good news about Jesus. I want you to see three things from this passage that he teaches us. He teaches us that God prepares the way for Jesus, that Jesus stands in the place of sinners, and that Jesus undoes what we got wrong. That God prepares the way for Jesus, that Jesus stands where we stand, and that he undoes what we got wrong. Let's look first at how God prepares the way for Jesus. Look in verses 2 through 8. These verses, verses 2 through 8, all orbit around John the Baptist and his ministry. But notice where where Mark begins. He begins by quoting God's word, the prophet Isaiah. And he also here weaves in, under verse 2, a quote from the book of Malachi as well. And you might wonder, well, why is, is, did Mark make a mistake here? Is he... Um, Attributing something that Malachi wrote to Isaiah, I don't think he is doing that. I think what's happening here is he's quoting Isaiah and he's using this quote from Malachi in verse two to support what he want the point he wants to make from Isaiah. And the point is this: that God has been planning this for a very long time. That God has been preparing for the the coming of the Lord. For a very long time In fact God has been working out this plan For the Lord to show up Finally and definitively Ever since Adam and Eve Sinned against God Back in Genesis chapter 3 It's not a new story But it's the fulfillment Of an old story That God has been working out Throughout the scriptures And John the Baptist here Is the fulfillment of these quotations from the prophets that he is the voice of one crying in the wilderness who says prepare the way of the Lord make his paths straight and so when we come to the ministry of John the Baptist it's this is a little bit of an odd passage because what Mark is telling us God is preparing the way for Jesus through John the Baptist now, how does he do that? Look in verse 6. Here Mark describes for us this character John the Baptist as clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. If you, if you didn't know anything about the Old Testament, you'd think this guy is a wingnut. <laughs> he eats wild honey and locusts and dresses funny. But what is God doing here? He's showing you through John the Baptist, just the way that he dresses, the way he carries himself. He actually almost quotes identically the same practice and attire of Elijah in the Old Testament. You can go back to 2 Kings chapter 1 verse 8. And Elijah is described in exactly the same way. And if you go back and read the story of Elijah, one of the greatest Old Testament prophets, spends most of his ministry in the wilderness, outside of the city of Jerusalem, not welcomed by the religious establishment. Here Mark is trying to show us again, with John the Baptist, this is not a new story. It's the fulfillment of an old story. So God, he quotes... From the prophets. Even in the very ways that John is dressed. In where he ministers. He shows us he's preparing the way for Jesus. But then he also prepares the way for the Lord. In the way that he preaches. Look in verse 7 and 8. Mark tells us that John preached saying. After me comes he who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down. And untie. So when John shows up, what does he say? He says, There's one greater than me coming. I am not even worthy to touch his feet. Now think about this. John stands in the line of Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah, all of the great prophets of Israel. And in fact, we learn from Matthew that John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. But he says, one greater than me is coming. Well, what kind of greater person? I think we're meant to fill in the blank, a greater prophet. Well, what's a prophet? Very simply, a prophet is someone who represents God to the people. Speaks for God to the people. Listen to what we read in Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. You see, what John the Baptist is saying, the great prophet is coming. The final word from God is coming. And it's not just a word... To point forward. But it is God in the flesh. A person. Who speaks for God. Finally. And fully. And definitively. So not only does he tell us that a greater one is coming. And we'll get to verse 8 in a few moments. But I want you to look back up with me to verse 4. That God prepares the way. By John the Baptist pointing to this promised Messiah. But he also prepares the way by calling people to repentance. Look in verse 4. He says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, now remember for a moment, the whole gospel begins with the idea of good news. But very in a very short few verses, here we see John the Baptist calling people to repent, well, that might not sound like good news. Because to be told that you need to repent means something's not right with you, that you're actually in the wrong. And I I think that this, we need to think about this for a moment, that it might actually be really off-putting to you until you realize that you do this all the time. You just call it something different. One of the most basic ideas embedded in this idea of repentance is what we call a do-over or a fresh start. It's, it's recognizing that something that you do needs to change. We do this all the time. You change your eating habits, you change your sleeping habits, your work habits. If you're a, a young person and you're trying to make a certain kind of Shot in basketball You say, it's a do-over I need to do it again You realize you didn't do it right You see here, John the Baptist Is announcing That there is a spiritual Do-over That there is a fresh start to be had And the biggest difference between Our efforts to repent Or to start over Is they only, they barely go past surface level. They can't change the heart. They can't really change you from the inside out. They're cosmetic and that's it. They might really make huge differences in your life, no question. But they can't fundamentally change what you love, what you long for, what owns your affections. And here, when John the Baptist shows up and says, I am back to, I, I'm proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That in the repentance that he is proclaiming, and only this repentance, can your heart change. Can you as a spiritual person change from the inside out? You see, unless that we respond to, and this is the only response that is open to us according to Mark, that when John the Baptist shows up to prepare the way for Jesus and announces this good news, that a greater one is coming, the way you know you're paying attention to that announcement and that good news is you begin to call out for forgiveness. And not from other people, though that may be necessary. But you begin to call out for forgiveness from God. You begin to go to him and say, I am wrong and you are right. I need you to change me. I need you to help me to turn from living for myself and to turn to living for you. And you see, unless we respond to the good news about Jesus with repentance, we will miss out on all that is good about this coming, his coming. And here's why. And this is our second point. Jesus stands in the place of sinners. Look at this baptism again. In verses 9 through 11, Jesus shows up. John the Baptist has been baptizing in the wilderness. People have been coming from all over. Look at verse 5. Mark tells us people from all over the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him we're being baptized but remember what kind of baptism this is it's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and jesus shows up and john the baptist baptizes jesus and you need to you need to make this connection what that means is jesus came to receive a baptism of repentance with the forgiveness of sins. That ought to alarm you. There's a problem there. Because if Jesus is the Messiah. If he is the Lord. The promised one. Sinless and perfect. Why does he need to be baptized. With a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the answer is. What we have here is Jesus' public acknowledgement that he had to come and stand where sinners should stand. He came to take John the Baptist's baptism to tell you and to tell me, he has come to stand where you and I stand. He has come to say, I identify with you as God's chosen one, as the Messiah the beloved, perfect Son of God, to stand where you stand. What does that mean? That means Jesus has come to identify with you as a sinner. Can you think about that for a moment? This is what elsewhere the Bible talks about a substitute. He came to stand where you stand and to bear what you deserve. In exchange for giving you grace, forgiveness, fellowship with God. And as Jesus comes and receives this baptism from John the Baptist and stands with all of these sinners who have come from all of Judea and all of Jerusalem, and in fact, from all over the world throughout history, what happens? The heavens break open. And a voice from heaven comes out and says, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Father pronounces acceptance and love upon the Son. The Holy Spirit descends on the Son. The entire Trinity is involved in this moment of Jesus undergoing a baptism That identifies him with sinners. Do you know what that means? This is, I think, startling. That God the Father says to the Son, after he's been baptized with this baptism, I am delighted with you. You see, here is the source of all of the assurance that Jesus needs. All of the approval and the confirmation that what he has come to do is precisely what the Father wants him to do. It's not as though Jesus has come to identify with us and then go back to his Father and try and say, please, please, Father, will you please, how can I convince you that what I've done really is a good thing? No, what you see here is God is saying to you, if you belong to Jesus and everything about Jesus belongs to you, God is pleased with you. See, the source of your assurance comes right from this passage. That when God says, I am pleased with Jesus. If you belong to Jesus, you have that same affirmation. That same pronouncement of God's pleasure on you. It's that strong. You see, Jesus, He is the source of our assurance by going, undergoing this baptism that tells us that He steps in and identifies with us. See, having received the Spirit and having willingly stood in the place of sinners, He is now uniquely qualified to make right what we have gotten wrong. Look with me here now with in verses 12 to 13. So, so far we've seen God prepare the way for Jesus, the Messiah to come. Jesus has now showed up. He's undergone John's baptism to stand where we stand. And now, what does the Spirit do? Verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. The, the other Gospels talk about Jesus' temptation at much greater length. And it's very tempting to go to those other um, accounts of the temptation of Jesus and, and pull in from them. And I'm, I'm trying to resist that. And, and here's why. What I want you to see here is Jesus, twice in just these two verses, He is in the wilderness. John the Baptist's ministry begins in the wilderness. And here Jesus is driven further out into the wilderness. And he also, Mark tells us, that he was with the wild animals. And the word here translated wild animals almost uniformly in the scriptures describes the animals as a threat. In other words, Jesus is in a hostile environment. And almost always in the Bible, the wilderness is a bad place. And what you should hear here in this in these two verses are echoes of God's people wandering in the wilderness after He delivered them from Egypt. It was a bad time. It didn't go very well. The opposite of the wilderness in the Bible is the Garden of Eden. Think of it like this. The book of Hebrews describes us, the church. As a wilderness community, we are still in a broken, hostile world on the way to the promised land, on the way back to the garden, to the new city, God's heavenly city. But notice what happens here Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, is driven out into the wilderness. What does that mean? Jesus begins his ministry in a hostile environment. But notice he's also being tempted by Satan That ought to perhaps maybe trigger an echo Of the temptation of Adam and Eve In the Garden of Eden That here, what Mark is doing It's flushed out later by the Apostle Paul He, he describes Jesus as the second Adam What Mark is trying to show us here Jesus begins his ministry Where Adam left off When Adam began in the Garden of Eden in perfect communion and fellowship with his father and disobeys God and is cast out outside the garden into the wilderness, as it were, Jesus begins there. Why does Mark begin there? Why does Jesus begin there? Because he had to come and begin his ministry in a broken world, a world ravaged by sin. Falling apart, right where you and I live, because we needed him to begin there in order to win back for us the way to the tree of life. So, when Mark begins his gospel by telling us, here's how God has prepared the way for the Lord to come, for Jesus to come, and Jesus undergoes the baptism that John gives to communicate, he identifies with you, he stands where you stand to be your substitute, to bear the penalty that you and I both deserve. And he begins his ministry in a broken, fallen, sinful world so that as we follow out the good news about Jesus for the rest of this gospel, what we're watching happen for the next 15 and a half chapters is Jesus push back undo unravel the world in which we live to the point where it would cost him his own life so when we begin this gospel and Mark begins with the beginning of the good news about Jesus I want you to see here Remember, John says there's a greater one coming. And that's Jesus. He's the greater prophet. But then he also stands where you and I stand. That's what a priest does. Because you know what a priest is. A priest, like a a prophet represents God to the people. What does a priest do? A priest represents the people to God. And then we have, in verses 12 and 13, Jesus' temptation. He withstands. All the onslaughts of the evil one. All of the trials and the suffering and the struggle that we face. And he wins. You know what that is? That's a king. That's a king winning for his people. Going to bat for his people. Defending his people. In order to win the way back to perfect Fellowship and communion with the God who made you. So when we begin, I I want you to see, this is just the beginning of, uh, to borrow that phrase again, of the sea of empathy. How we step back from our own lives and the circumstances that we face, as real as they are, in order to look at Jesus, the good news about him. That he is the prophet that we need. That he's, he's the priest that we need. And he is the king that we need. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that as we begin this study, that begin looking at the gospel of Mark, we pray that it would be good news for us. That you would work by your spirit to help us to see Jesus as your final word, the word that we most need. Help us to see how he actually identifies with us and how he rules and defends us and cares for us. And I pray, Father, that as we do that, you would change us from the inside out. That our response to this Jesus would be one of repentance and faith. And that you would give us the grace to follow you, to love our neighbors. And in doing so, Help others to come to know this good news as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.